these artifacts or sites or things can be a lot more meaningful, especially as living culture within the context of staying where they are at. Sometimes things like they don't belong to people, they don't belong to tribes, they're part of the land. We can actually recognize that even within quote unquote like Western culture, there's aspects of things that if you moved it, it wouldn't have the same context, but we don't think of that in the same relation with other cultural artifacts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, feel free to <laughs> feel free to give us money. <laughs> feel free to give us all of your money, <laughs> or we'll rob a bank. <laughs> what bank are we gonna rob? <laughs> we don't. <laughs> We're not all in the same location. <laughs> like this is mm-hmm. ineffective. <laughs> Cody just enters one and has us on Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys, what should I do? Uh, I should do like an Instagram live me robbing a bank or something. We are recording, so maybe we just don't yeah, <laughs> talk about this. <laughs> that's that's the Patreon exclusive episode. It's just like if you sign up for our Patreon, you get to see me robbing a bank or something. Okay, sir, <laughs> let's move on. Let's be serious. Okay. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Unlivable Cultures. Unlivable Cultures is a podcast making with and borrowing from anthropology, social theory, and other forms of knowledge for a more livable world. A more livable My name world. is Cody Skahan. That was an echo. <laughs> that was good. I like it. Uh, I like my it. name is... <laughs> okay. <laughs> my name is Cody Skahan, and I use he, him pronouns. I'm joined by my co-hosts... <laughs> Oh, am I supposed to say words? Yeah, you're always second. Wow. I, I feel like I need to just like make that an official rule in my head. Anyways, I'm Julia Coverdale. I'm a pronouncer they, them. I do things, archaeology things. And my name is Clayton. Pronouns he, him. And I also do things. Nice. But you don't get to know what things I do because I'm <laughs> mysterious. <laughs> He's the mysterious of the three, yes. Okay, Julia, do you have a tagline? This is a great question. The answer is, this is the podcast where we talk about how construction actually ruins everything. Construction? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, because... That's so deep. Yeah. I can't wait to see you build this case. Yes, and I will. Pun intended. Just for me to tear it down. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, just for some white man to tear it down with his facts and logic. That just made me uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. We've grown out of the Ben Shapiro destroys college SJW with facts and logic stage. Ben Shapiro schools woke college student. By just speaking faster. So in this episode, we're talking about museum acquisitions and we're taking, I think, a very strong decolonial lens, at least I am, to this because, um, of course, museums are built on histories of settler colonialism and extractivism of acquiring different artifacts, empires acquiring different artifacts from different places in the world, removing them from their local context. um, Yay, imperialism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, cool. That's all I have, actually. (laughs) So, Julia, would you like to give us a little history of museum acquisitions and um, definition and history of this for us? 
Yeah, so from the University of Alaska Museum of the North website, because the other website I was looking at said I had to be a member in order to look the page. But they combine um, acquisitions and accessioning. And so they define accessioning is the process of creating a permanent record of an object, assemblage, or lot received from one source at one time for which the museum has custody, right, or title, and assigning a unique control number to said object, assembly, or lot. And then some museums, like this specific museum page that I'm looking at, has um, a whole bunch of acquisition criteria. So acquisition and accession are just all all the, the ways in which, uh, and it's talking about the ways in which um, museums requ- acquire the objects that they put on display or that they keep in their archives. And some museums have different standards. Like this one has a whole bunch of like criteria and everything that kind of talks about ethics and, and handling and all of those things. But I'm not going to use them as the standard because they are they are not every single museum. So from your view, Julia, why are museums even important or why do they exist? Like, what is the feeling of importance to have museums in our society? Yeah. So I think I think for a couple of reasons, I think firstly that they are a place of learning. And I think for me as like an archaeologist that does kind of indigenous history um, of the United States, a lot of the museums that I go to or the the things that I look at in museums are stuff that like the public is not necessarily always learning about because of the like public education uh, standards in the United States and because of colonialism. And so like, I think those are part of the reason why it's important. I also just think in general, having places of learning and public places that promote history and things of that nature are important. Of course, museums also have a history to them, a colonial history. But I also think that museums and archives in general are just important because it's it's important to remember that archaeological materials from archaeological excavations have to go somewhere. Like they can't just sit on a shelf. They have to go to climate controlled rooms and, and things of that nature because of the standards within the United States itself. And also just because that's just generally good preservation um, practices within the field. And so that's partially what I meant by the tagline, but we can get into that later. Yeah, I really like the idea of museums as a place of learning, especially as you say, with the education system current, like in the US, for example, because like in preparation for this episode, and just like because I've taken a class this semester and we talked about Raymond Williams, one of the sort of fathers of cultural studies in the UK, especially. So his his sort of big thing is cultural materialism. Cultural materialism is like paying attention to like material forces. And this includes like literature and museums, artifacts, basically all of this stuff that makes up sort of a cultural life world and describes how different the hegemonic ideological like of say colonialism, of imperialism, of he was mostly writing from a British context. So he's writing about like the colonial British empire. So it's it's about how through the museums, through public education, the, the British state constructs the certain image of Britain and imperialism and everything, which says that we're not like these others, these colonial others. But then also historically, like museums have been also important for um, 
educating the masses or just being even a social place for the masses. So it's a way of like, even the British lower classes who are maybe denigrated and like excluded because of their poor education can then actually access more education or at least just even a social gathering spot or a place where they can be recognized in some aspects of their like culture through museums. I appreciate you drawing on the importance and the, I guess, significance of materiality of culture, because especially currently, I feel like, at least in my view, like I didn't grow up with there being an extreme importance placed on museums and learning in museums and going to prestigious museums or anything. Like I honestly haven't been to very many museums and sometimes I'll go to one people are like, oh, it's just a great museum. And I'm like, okay, I just see stuff in, you know, cases and whatever else. But I think there is an important aspect of the materiality of culture that is preserved in museums that we don't often recognize and give legitimacy to, at least in more mainstream culture. And especially now where you can see pictures and virtual exhibits and everything else like going to a museum and seeing the actual artifact may not seem as significant anymore but I think there is some trace that these cultural materials that these artifacts still hold on to of the culture in which they come from and there is still some you know there's still life within these objects even if we don't recognize it entirely and so i think that's something to be thinking about as we enter into these conversations is the life that's within these objects or the life of these objects and the cultures they're attached to ways in which you know these objects are being cared for and who's caring for them and who's taking ownership of them and what does that mean when it's you know crossing cultures and maybe like without you know, consent from its place of origin and all that other stuff. Like there is significance to the materiality of culture that we often don't give legitimacy to. I don't think so. That's one thing that I'm thinking about as we enter into this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. What you're describing here sounds like, you know, kind of Walter Benjamin's concept of aura. It's like about the the unique presence of certain objects and like his main work is art in the age of mechanical reproduction. Um, the work of art in the age of its technolo- technological reproducibility is another translation, but he talks about aura and how it's like with mass media and mass production, it's becoming less and less of an important thing and less and less of a thing that we seem to care about culturally. So I think that's, yeah, just like to echo that. Yeah. And I just wanted to say too, like I grew up going to museums all the time, especially because when I started as a young child, started becoming interested in archaeology. I was very interested in ancient Egypt and ancient Greece and, and ancient Rome and all of those big name cultures that you're fascinated with as a young child. So a lot of the the ways to access that was through going to museums. And so I was just generally very much a museum child and my brother was not. And so it was like, like we would, my family would take so us to museums. So you're saying you were the nerd and your brother was yes. the <laughs> Yes, I am indeed saying that. Yeah. Um, so like, <laughs> Museums both hold a special place in my heart as like a child and then also like now as an archaeologist, it's it's also interesting to 
go to museums, especially in the Southwest, and like not read anything. I'm just there, look at the things. Or if I'm there to read stuff, like I think one of the the best and most interesting Southwestern museums that I've been to was the uh, Pueblo Indian Learning Center in Albuquerque, because all of that was from an indigenous Pueblo perspective. Um, And I thought that that was really fascinating because that's not something that is often talked about or recognized within archaeology, even though I think we're getting there. But also, kind of to to Clayton's point as well, I don't want to just sit here and romanticize museums either. Like museums currently are are bad and also historically have a dark history to them. So per usual, we're going to talk some shit. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, I would just like to say, if you take your kids to a museum, it's a gateway drug to archaeology. So <laughs> cringe. <laughs> Kind of cringe. Wow. Um, <laughs> I would museums are the gateway drug. That's just the tagline. Of this <laughs> that is the tagline. <laughs> yeah. And I think also part of this whole discussion is, is talking about who owns these objects and who has a right to this past and to tell these stories in addition to like owning and displaying. And we're mostly talking about artifacts today, but I've also done research on indigenous mummies here in the U.S. that have been put on display historically and and kind of the ownership and that's displaying of the body as like the other kind of here in the United States. And even possibly digging deeper into these ideas of ownership and right of display and such like digging in a little about like how this enters the conversation and what are the implications of such colonial ideas when it comes to sacred objects or just like cultural objects in general yeah yeah well and the sacred objects thing is getting a little bit better with indigenous groups here in the united states because of nagpra because that is is a portion of nagpra is repatriating sacred objects but that doesn't address you know like the met or the nelson in in kansas city that has all of these sacred objects from cultures around the world that don't have like a respective nagpra or, or similar law like that that would force a lot of these museums to take action and re-examine the things that they have and the things that they own that are not theirs. What I found really interesting about this too is just like the question of like the original purpose and intention and, and sort of the violence of collecting artifacts in the first place because in the piece I read it was called Decolonizing Ethnographic De- Documentation, A Critical History of Early Museum Catalogs at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History, they talked about like the initial even impetus for collecting from indigenous tribes in the U.S. like artifacts was because they were afraid indigenous cultures were dying out because like they were killing them. So they write, um, however, when the focus shifted towards the collection of material culture, the importance of collecting information and objects from indigenous groups was seen as a way to safeguard these objects before the people themselves had disappeared which is just, yeah. Just the idea of the fact that we were more preoccupied to preserve the like material traces of a culture than the actual people that were living in that culture. And not only that, but the fact that we were, we as in white people, settler colonialists, were the ones causing the destruction and death. That was, I mean, the irony is just, top-notch yeah 
let's hop in. Let's see some real world examples of the atrocities that colonialism and imperialism have committed. Yeah. So first of all, yeah, there was literally like at the uh, Smithsonian Museum of Natural Science, they had two categories for like indigenous objects that they collected. It was either like artwork or related to warfare. So it's like obviously has these orientalizing or exoticizing sort of connotations with it. Whereas like other artifacts from European culture stuff would have way, way, way more categories. And like I said, just sort of how these categories are based on what we Westerners at the time found important, at least Western scientists, museums who were trying to categorize and organize all the shit they were getting from just random people. Like they were literally making these field guides so that if average Joe found some sort of like uh, indigenous object or like acquired it in some way, which isn't described and they were getting paid for it. So like clearly this, this was something that these museums were supporting, just like having normal citizens just going places and, and taking objects without any like systematic approach to it whatsoever. Besides, they wanted them to collect this certain data, which could be forged or oftentimes was left off. And if they didn't have this data, that's what kind of made the difference between what constituted a valuable artifact that they were interested in displaying and talking about. But if they didn't have like the data on where they got it, what year they got it, everything like that, then it was just considered like random haphazard junk. So basically like they were taking these things and if you didn't ask the right questions or have the right information about it, they could be sacred artifacts. They could be really important to the culture you got it from. But in the eyes of the museum, it was just random junk that they would just throw in the back room and not really do anything with. Which is interesting because I'm sure the more examples we talk about, the more apparent it will be that in a lot of ways, some of that information is not purposefully sought out or just isn't seen as being significant, which can then be used to justify the horrible means in which it was acquired and then also can be used to shed any responsibility of what's the word sending it back of returning it if we don't know where we got it from we can't send it back (laughs) yeah well and, and part of that too is the whole like purchasing or taking on collections that have been looted or stolen that one you can't say anything about artifacts that have been looted or stolen half the time you can't even say like directly where they're from but then also these museums are just taking on and encouraging this continued illegal acquisition and sale of these artifacts it continues to perpetrate this problem and it's just not ethical and it's also just it's a little weird to be like my grandpa's got this thing that uh, he dug up. Can you have it? And it's also like, if if he dug that up, you know, with burials, there's no way this museum is ever going to know or return it because mm. they accepted this object that was illegally stolen or illegally excavated. So calling that a little bit weird, is that your professional opinion as an archaeologist or your personal opinion? <laughs> um, I'm going with personal opinion so nobody can... um get mad at me (laughs) so here's a fun thing i don't know if either of you remember this i stumbled upon this in my research and was surprised but then i'm like oh my gosh i do remember this in black panther this is actually an entire scene do y'all remember that Mm -hmm. i remember watching the movie and being like 
damn, good for them for calling it out. And then I completely forgot about it until now. But I'll go ahead and read a snippet of the scene. This is like taken verbatim from a Guardian article just to set the scene. Surveying the African collection at the Museum of Great Britain, Killmonger corrects the exhibition's patronizing white curator about the provenance of an axe. Quote, it was taken by British soldiers in Benin, but it's from Wakanda. Don't trip. I'm going to take it off your hands for you. And when the woman replies that the items are not for sale, Killmonger says, how do you think your ancestors got these? Do you think they paid a fair price or did they take it like they took everything else? Even reading it, that scene feels very powerful to me. And also like the ways that we don't often think about those dynamics when we're standing in a museum, at least we as in lay people, archaeologists and other curators and anthropologists may be thinking about this stuff, but you know. So like us, but not us. Yeah. <laughs> like it wasn't something that I sit there and thought about like tracing the history of how it got to the museum. It was like all the focus is on the history of before it came to this context, but there's not really any consideration of the ethics or the process for which this piece was acquired and the care mm. that it receives and such. And that's something that as we talk about, I've got more stuff to draw on, but those kinds of considerations can often be ways to scapegoat responsibility for repatriation so i'll go ahead julia mentioned the met earlier as you can imagine the met is very interesting so the met is one of the biggest museums in the u.s if not the biggest i'm not entirely sure of the nuances around um, objects and art well, museums and everything else I'll i think the smithsonian complex is bigger slash they have more political power because like the smithsonian is treated a little bit independently from everything else because like nagpro when it was originally created did not apply to the smithsonian but now the smithsonian mm -hmm. has their own nagpro-esque law that applies to their museums and their collections forbes says the met so i trust forbes no, i'm kidding <laughs> yeah just for a little context the Met was established in 1870. It only had 174 paintings at that time in 1870 when it was established. But the ambition of the museum was to grow large enough to rival like the Louvre or the British Museum. And so that was kind of the ambition and the motivation for amassing an extensive collection of art and artifacts and historical pieces. They have a shit ton of Egypt stuff. That's my professional opinion. So. <laughs> but so, okay, the museum now has over 1.5 million objects. And according to the museum, it reflects over 5,000 years of human creativity. I thought you were going to say like over 5,000 different cultures or something like that. It was like, ooh, you're counting cultures. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> just imagine how problematic that will be of isolating cultures and times and what can. Yeah, mm -mm, no, thank you. Um, <laughs> but yeah. So 
1.5 million objects. There's been an entire investigation by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. They published a pretty hard hitting piece saying that the museum's catalog, after reviewing it all, found over 1,100 pieces that had been bought from known antiquities criminals and not even half of which had any further record about their past. Did they find Indiana Jones in there? Did they buy any from Indiana Jones? I don't, that's a good question. Indiana or, Jones is a professor, actually, so know. he's reputable and not a looter. Yeah, he definitely follows NAGPRA and yes. IRB guidelines and all the other things. I did so, hear, he does say, that belongs in a museum, so I trust him. I trust him, so... <laughs> Yeah, so they acquired a lot of these from known criminals, mobs, mafia, like anyone that could acquire these pieces in shady terms. Like they honestly didn't care. They just bought it up. And the director of the museum that oversaw this massive acquisition of the Met that kind of took it from hundreds of pieces to like 1.5 million his name was thomas hoving just went on a buying spree so that it could match you know rivals in london and paris and hoving is even recorded as saying not a single decade of any civilization that took root on earth is not represented by one some worthy piece the met has it all yet at the same time all five civilizations yeah. <laughs> we all believe that the stuff was illegally dug up, he told a longtime gr- Greek curator. For Christ's sakes, if the Turks come up with the proof from their side, we'll give the East Greek treasure back. And that's policy. We took our chances when we bought the material. So it's kind of like this burden of proof is then placed upon the place of origin of these pieces to prove that it was acquired illegally. And then... The Met's policy is to repatriate it and give it back. But one thing I want to highlight is just this idea of policies and procedures. So when the Met defended its collection practices, it says, and I quote, the Met is committed to the responsible collecting of art and goes to great lengths to ensure that all works entering the collection meet the laws and strict policies in place at the time of acquisition. Oh, and I just want to like highlight and underline at the time of acquisition how relative that is. And then the Met spokesperson went on to say, additionally, as laws and guidelines on collecting have changed over time, so have the museum's policies and procedures. The Met also continually researches the history of works in the collection, often in collaboration with colleagues in countries around the world, and has a long track record of acting on new information as appropriate. Because it's in the policy, y'all. It's in the policy. So they're basically saying like, bet you can't prove we stole it. But even if you can, it doesn't matter because it was okay to steal it at the time. Well, that's what I'm getting. They're like, now our policy may be that if you can prove that it was stolen and acquired illegally, we'll give it back. But you need to prove that because we have a policy in place that requires us have this certain information in order to be able to act on it. And so... You know, not to say in their defense, but reality is they have repatriated some things. They have sent some artifacts and objects back to the place of origin, but they also have 
in many cases, actual prosecutors have had to go in and seize objects for the repatriation of these objects to be sent back. So in that situation, obviously, the Met is not cooperating with what on a more, you know, popular level is understood to be the evidence needed. And so one example of the report that I mentioned and the Guardian article that kind of speaks through the report specifically talks about a object from Bungmati, Nepal, which just for context in Bungmati, Nepal, above an ancient spring, there were two stone shrines and a temple. And on one of those shrines is a large hole where the statue of Sridhar Vishnu, the Hindu protector god, used to be. So that statue was stolen in the 1980s. And this was very significant in the culture. Like it was carefully tended to at the temple and was worshipped by the local people. It was part of the rituals of that culture and religion. And once that statue was stolen... All of that abruptly ended, like that aspect of religious expression and ritual, like that whole thing was taken from the community. And then after a decade of the theft, somehow a wealthy American collector donated it to, you know, the Met. And it stayed there for 30 years until supposedly an anonymous Facebook account called Lost Arts of Nepal finally identified it back in 2021. And although the Met has removed the statue from being publicly listed, the article in The Guardian notes that the damage to the Bungmati community has already been done. And it cites a volunteer from the Nepal Heritage Recovery Campaign named Rashan Mishra saying, Nepal has a living religion where these idols are actively worshipped in temples. People pray to them and take them out during festivals for ceremonies. When relics are stolen, those festivals stop. Each stolen statue erodes our culture. Our traditions fade and are eventually gone. So in this example, you know, we have a very live culture and live interaction with what can be called an artifact, but is a religious icon and object that is actively being involved in people's lives and that's stolen and then begins to collect dust in a museum across the world. You know, it's kind of that tension of the fading and disappearing and forgetting of culture and cultural significance of certain pieces and aspects. I also wanted to add, for anybody that has ever visited uh, Chaco Canyon National Historic Site in the Southwest, um, which I don't think either of you have visited, where all of the great houses are. It's a national park site in New Mexico in the middle of the Navajo Reservation. It's really difficult to get to, um, partially because of of all of the reservation roads that you have to cross to get into the site itself. But most, so most like national park sites have like an adjoining museum at the national park that have artifacts from that national park. At Chaco Canyon, notably, they have like a room set up for an entire exhibit and display with no objects in it. But part of the reason that they supposedly that they're told that they can't have um, artifacts in there is because of climate control. Um, They don't have 
adequate climate control, basically. So major museums like the American Museum of Natural History in New York City, the National Museum of American History and the National Museum of the American Indian, all of those are basically refusing to give these artifacts to Chaco Canyon, which, yes, it is a national park site, but given the context that the the national park site is is located in, a lot of the staff there is, are indigenous, and and they're just refusing to not even repatriate, but just put these artifacts back into their cultural context, and not even really figure out how to help with climate control or construction, or any of those things with all of these artifacts that you shouldn't have to travel to New York City to go see when you're living in and working at these sites every day. So I just kind of wanted to add that since we were already kind of discussing the East Coast, because I remembered that was a thing. And then I also wanted to say, and this can be put elsewhere, wherever you want to put it. Um, in the trash. No. In the trash. That's also fair, because <laughs> I don't know if this will generate some great discussion, but a lot of the ways that excavations happen currently is because of construction projects, because of national laws. If construction is happening on federal land or with federal money, crews need to bring out and con- um, contact cultural resource management companies and bring out archaeologists to see if they're going to disturb archaeological sites and resources with this construction. And so sometimes after that survey is completed and there is a site that's discovered, um, what will then take place is a a salvage excavation project um, that happens to kind of save as much as you can before the construction takes place. And I think one popular or or one known example of this is uh, the Dolores River project. Before the dam was built on the Dolores River, a whole bunch of archaeologists were hired to excavate all of these sites along the river that are now covered over with the reservoir. But all of those artifacts are in the Canyons of the Ancients National Monument, um, which is operated by the Bureau of Land Management. So I just kind of wanted to point out that, one, a lot of museums and institutions that house collections are now kind of overflowing um, and can't take anything else because of all of these construction projects and these salvage archaeological excavations. And then also that a lot of those, I would say a good significant chunk of those collections, nothing happens with them. You know, research doesn't happen with them. They don't go on display They sit and, you know, they're in climate controlled and they're preserved and everything. But how valuable is owning and and keeping these artifacts if nothing happens with them? And are these artifacts, have they contacted the tribes that have historically lived in that area and been like, do you want your stuff? So especially if there's going to be excavation that is happening, a lot of CRM companies do contact affiliated or appropriate tribes to kind of discuss with them and and create a contract of like, what would you, what do you want us to do if we excavate these things? And so I know that that is one way that they address them, but I don't know what all that that pertains to in, in terms of like artifacts itself. And while recognizing the good intention of, you know, that reach out and having that kind of negotiation of ownership and contractual obligation like i do want to highlight that this is colonial in nature like 
the state government institution enforcing a contract of ownership for cultural objects that the state has no right to in the first place. And even the language of who has a right to an object does sever a certain relational capacity that a lot of cultures have with the living material culture in which they exist. Like with our colonial imperialist and capitalist system, we think of objects as property and something to be owned and something someone may have a right to versus someone else. But those same conceptions do not, you know, translate universally. And just that aspect in itself is enforcing a certain colonial and capitalist logic. Yeah. And I, I definitely agree with that. The other thing to keep in mind is that without CRM archaeology and without these laws, indigenous sites and indigenous history would just be destroyed in the process of construction. Just going back to what Clayton said too, of the contractual nature of it because it seems like on one degree it's like these artifacts or or sites or things can be a lot more meaningful especially as Clayton talked about as living like material living culture within the context of staying where they are at and the aspect of just sometimes things don't belong like they don't belong to people they don't belong to tribes they don't I mean they're like they belong to the land they're part of the land they're this sort of like more embedded in in material thing that like, I mean, I think we can actually recognize that even within quote unquote, like Western culture, there's aspects of things that if you moved it, it wouldn't have the same context, but we don't think of that in the same relation with other cultural artifacts and everything. And then on top of that, it feels like as good as the intentions might be, it kind of goes with the Met Museum thing too, like these contracts are a way of saying, ah, we did the thing that we were supposed to do, so we're we're good. We don't have to do anything else. It's a bit of... We followed a policy we created. No, and that's <laughs> yeah, fair. We're winning exactly. at the game that we created. <laughs> it's a bit of dust washing. I also just want to mention that like, I think in an ideal world, we would respect this land and those sites and we would do our best to avoid them and not have to, like, we don't need to excavate anymore. We have enough collections for so many people to do dissertations and and research and all of those things that you don't need to continue these processes. But also construction companies and, and all of those things, like they don't give a shit. So yeah, I don't want to diminish that it's not something like it is something it is. I don't want to say progress necessarily, but it is better than what was in place. Yeah. Yeah. But it's definitely not perfect. It's what Obama was trying to bring to this country. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) I have to keep things spicy every once in a while. It's fun. (laughs) So one thing that I wanted to mention is the Savoy Sar report on African art restitution. Do y'all know much about that? I don't. So it was commissioned by French President Emmanuel Macron. Oh. I may be saying that wrong because oh, I don't have a French accent. Yeah, but, that um, guy. Macron. There we Macron. go. You can use that. It's very, that's a very Parisian accent. Sorry. Very Parisian Sorry. accent. Sorry. You elitist. Did you say Macron you. or something? Yeah, I did. <laughs> Macron. So in 2017, he said, starting today and within the next five years, I want to see the conditions put in place so as to allow for the temporary or definitive restitution of African cultural heritage to Africa. 
And it's out of that statement that he commissioned economist, um, I'm sorry to these people, following Saar and art historian Benedict Savoy to prepare a report on how this temporary or definitive restitution could happen, which I mentioned this because very interestingly, the counter to this was, and I'll just read straight from a Guardian article from Tristram Hunt, or maybe I won't. Who's to say? That man of mystery coming back. <laughs> Actually, I do want to quote this just to get it right. When it came to the troubled provenance of parts of their collection, of the 18 prominent institutions which signed a 2002 declaration on the importance of and value of universal museums. The declaration decreed, quote, over time, objects so acquired, whether by purchase, gift, or portage, have become part of the museums that have cared for them, and by extension, part of the heritage of the nations which house them. <laughs> so it's this problematic idea people who are listening cannot see the eyes of cody and julia that bulged when i read that um <laughs> that was such a weird way of phrase that yes. <laughs> maybe um people listening cannot see julia and cody's eyes bulge when i read that sentence that's a little bit better um, i could make a joke but i'm not going to it would be it would yeah be, please would don't, be don't do that i know no. it's okay just the idea of like, no matter how we acquired these pieces, the fact that we put money and effort into caring for them means that they're part of our culture now. And we're doing good things, y'all. We love Finders. them. We want yes. them. <laughs> Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Yeah. <laughs> and then the case is made in this same article that Despite the imperialism and colonial violence, we need to have a more nuanced take on things of just seeing it as either good or bad, because throughout the history of the world, you know, there was trade, there was cross-cultural interactions of religion and war and migration and cultures and people mixed and they weren't static and yeah in many ways these collections <laughs> express the exchange and interactions that happened cross-culturally and it's important to have a material culture in these institutions that show this change oh and these cultural encounters Listen, I love migration and trade and all of those things in archaeology. I love it. It's very fascinating and interesting. That's not what this is. I don't know. I thought it was really important to just mention the pushback of these institutions, yeah. especially as we're talking about, you know, this example of the God statue that was stolen from the temple in Nepal from like culture that's alive and vibrant today not to say that that makes it more important than something that was stolen from a culture that's not as maybe like not to say it's more valuable than cultures that people don't have you know such engagement and involvement in anymore whether that be because of forced migration or language loss or those different things 
but it really draws into opposition these ideas of, well, now it's part of the museum, so it's part of our culture and our nation's culture since we take care of it, versus like, you know, this was actually stolen and illegally acquired from its place of origin where people still care about it and still are invested in it being part of their lives today. And it's it creates this really difficult tension of who gets to have this when we're both claiming it as part of our culture now. And it's just this really icky idea to think that, you know, a museum that acquires this illegally on the paper <laughs> Legality here is like laughable, but acquires it illegally or without all the checks and balances that should exist. And then just being like, well, now it's part of us. (laughs) And one thing that I want to mention that I thought was really interesting is Alice Proctor, who was a University of London student, created these uncomfortable art tours where she took people through British museums and kind of emphasized the ickiness of the feeling that I'm trying to get at. And one of the quotes that I have from her is saying, the whole concept of the museum as a colonialist imperialist fantasy born from the fallacy that somehow the whole world can be neatly cataloged, contained in a single building and mapped out for easy digestion. Like, put in those terms, it's ridiculous to think this should exist in the sense of like, we're just going to create a whole story of the world that's easily digestible, hopefully evokes a little emotion or stimulates the mind in some ways. And then people can leave knowing the world and having an appreciation of all the cultures. I don't see culture. We're all one culture. The human this culture. Is, this the is all culture. your history in this museum <laughs> that is full of indigenous artifacts. But white people, this is all your history too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The things that you hear when you exist in the world. I was trying to look up um stuff about the witness blanket um before we recorded. Is there like an issue? Where's the tea? Where's the tea? <laughs> I was like, I kept looking up witness blanket issue. <laughs> Just because, like, most of the time when we talk about archaeology, it's, you know, or museum For a change, it's not all <laughs> about and scandals. It's not all like, oh, you fucked up. <sighs> yeah. Sometimes that's fun, though, but, you know, it was also... No, I think, it's, like, I think it's more fun, but, like, this is important, too. Yeah. So. I think I kind of talked about this in our trailer breakdown, but I think, like, you know, you can't always just be, like critical and deconstructive you can but it's not fun. i know but i'm a hater at heart and so sometimes yeah, it's too. just fun to I be am. a hater <laughs> the podcast where we're all haters at heart <laughs> yeah in a lot of ways talking shit can be very fun but we do also want to recognize that actual work is being done And there is some good happening in some ways in which people are trying to make the world more livable. You see what we did there? We're starting with positive stuff, going to the negative stuff, and coming back to the positive stuff. Did we start with something positive? Did we start with... Museums. We were talking about museums and the good parts of museums. Remember? That was so long ago. You're just like, used to like, ah, no, I'm used to talking to shit all the time. What do you mean? We're positive. That naively good part about museums. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So we're naive. Then we're like 
pessimistic, now we're optimistic. I don't know about optimistic, but this is significant enough to highlight, I would we're, say. We're like, realist. We're realist. Sure, yeah. I mean, if we got to put a label on it. <laughs> yeah, shall we jump into it then? I guess I can start. One of the things that I thought would be really cool to highlight is an art installation called The Witness Blanket, which was by Carrie Newman. And it is featured at the Canadian Museum of Human Rights or Canada Museum of Human Rights. Uh, Canadians. Um, <laughs> so in 2019, October of 2019, Carrie Newman and the Canadian Museum for Human Rights, they entered into an agreement through a ceremony that was conducted at Kamugui, which was the Kamok's First Nation big house on Vancouver Island. So the significant part of this ceremony is that it was kind of a groundbreaking agreement between Newman, the Canadian Museum of Human Rights, and all who were witness there of vesting the legal rights of the artwork into the artwork itself, not the artist who made it or the museum where it will live, but the rights of the witness blanket art installation belongs to the witness blanket and as Marsha Letterman notes the story it carries so Newman is cited as saying I knew that I didn't want to sell it like a normal transaction I didn't want to set a price and negotiate that and deal with copyright issues and so the museum kind of entered into this agreement for responsibility of stewardship and all the witnesses who were there were part of that agreement ritual and ceremony, not just as legal witnesses, but also story keepers to the art installation itself. And Newman is also cited as saying, now there's a whole bunch more of us who carry the responsibility for making good decisions on behalf of the blanket and the story that it carries. So according to a book called Violent Inheritance by Dr. E. Cram, they say, and this is their description of Newman's witness blanket or the witness blanket. As a whole, the witness blanket is composed of two large square panels divided by smaller rectangle panel on either side of a central doorway. Newman describes how the confluence of witness and blanket to enact his traditions for Kwakwakewak blankets are pieces of identity and lineage worn in ceremony and for Coast Salish blankets are used to honor, uplift, and protect. And both of these oral traditions witness is a practice of memory keeping in addition to listening and reflection. So this witness blanket includes fragmented objects from places, memories, people, stories, and all were involved in the Canadian residential schools, which was a horrific time and institution where Indigenous and First Nations children were stolen from their communities and homes of origin and taken to these residential schools, which were places of torture and assault and just like death in many, pla in many ways, cultural death emotional death, physical death. So this witness blanket is like this representation of people's witnessing of that 
for those who were living through it and also people who still had some tie to that through their family, kinship, relationships, however it wants to be interpreted. And these were physical objects that were, you know, within these places and that made up this story of survival and resilience from these residential schools. So that is kind of a background of what Witness Blanket is and why the Canadian Museum of Human Rights was so interested in featuring it in as an installation. But with this piece of history and storytelling, it was really important for Newman and those involved to have this emphasis on stewardship and collaborative care versus, you know, just acquisition and ownership of a museum. As I mentioned earlier, that quote of, you know, not wanting to go through the negotiation and setting a price and copyright and everything else. Like, as we mentioned before, those are very colonial terms to engage with such a cultural artifact and like a living piece of material culture that is attached to people and relationships and experiences and history. So um, that's a little context for the witness blanket and why it's significant. And I will turn it to one of you if you have something to say. Just shortly, I guess. Also, I dug further into like the contract behind the witness blanket and the establishment of it and everything. The agreement concerning the stewardship of the witness blanket, there was a fee paid to the artist. Uh, it was $250,000. But this fee, and also came with the caveat that the museum would do in the best of its like capability to raise up to a further $500,000. But this is solely used to support the project of the legacy project surrounding the witness blanket and to maintain it and to keep it for future generations and to keep it um, restored and all of that. I really like the part about like that you mentioned with the artist actually being like a price tag on this, but it's still like realistic in terms of maintaining these things cost money. Like there's a long-term plan about it, but this long-term plan is not just based on like, here's a chunk of cash to keep keep it but there's like the people at the ceremony are responsible for being a part of it for keeping it preserved and cared and and the meaning attached same meaning attached to it and things like this but they also use like the term seven generations which is a uh, it's a cultural phrase according to this agreement that indicates forward thinking and future sustainability and it roughly translates into 140 years so there's like this a very clear like not just sort of contractual Western notion of legal care of the long-term aspect of maintaining the witness blanket, but like a culturally significant and culturally aware sort of way of holding on to the importance of this artifact and, and maintaining it. And I also want to add, just uh, expand a little bit on the significance of the ceremony. This is the first ceremony of its kind in which ceremony slash agreement in which a crown corporation, since, you know, this is the Canada and the Canadian Museum of Human Rights, it's the first time a crown corporation joined in what's called a trans-systemic legal agreement, drawing both from the Kwakwakewak tradition and legal order and the Canadian common law. So 
that sense of collaboration and agreement, I think, is really important to contrast with what we were talking earlier about acquisition and ownership. And this agreement as stewardship showcases a collaborative and collective responsibility of care. And defined in the agreement, care is respectful lodging, respectful methods for treating and preserving and repair and display. And this sense of responsibility and respect kind of destabilizes and displaces this notion of ownership and balances, as Cram says, preservation of museum property with, according to the agreement, physical and spiritual care. And it's a living relationship renewed with a feast after four years, an ongoing demonstration of responsibility to the past and those impacted in the present and the future. So, yeah, I just want to emphasize the significance of the indigenous ceremony and tradition and legal order that is being embraced in this stewardship and how it kind of models a new way in which we can partner and collaboratively steward these physical and spiritual ways of caring about material culture that allow us to have glimpses into the experiences of other people and communities. Yeah, I think we've kind of all touched on this already, that this is the direction that we should be taking museums and collections in, but I also think we should be recognizing that we should be taking every aspect of archaeology in this direction, in the the collaborative, very focused on indigenous ways of learning and life and knowledge production. Also just wanted to recognize that we have our own, the United States has our own um, history with residential schools that's kind of just now being fully analyzed and uncovered and that I think that the United States needs to do similar reckoning with and and education about the atrocities that we've committed towards indigenous culture and people and that this may not be the way that indigenous communities in the United States want to respond or react to all of this but I think whatever response that they deem is fitting I think we as as museum stewards and all of those things like that is something we should recognize and um, respect and try and strive towards and I also wanted to just point out for listeners who are interested in learning more about the witness blanket it has its own website that talks about the stories it talks about things within the blanket it's very like the website will let you know that it is very triggering and hard, but that the website itself is kind of designed to let you take breaks and help you deal with the the just difficult content. So I think that everybody should go take a chance and explore their webpage because it's just really, some of us can't go to Canada. So <laughs> yeah, I do want to highlight one of the things that you mentioned and it's that, you know, this kind of stewardship agreement requires a relationship between these two entities. And in many ways, the onus is on the museum entity or in whatever context, like it's on the state based funded, whatever else organization, the settler organization, the onus is on them to embark on this 
relationship and to make the necessary amendments and you know reparations in order to enter into such a collaborative stewardship and this isn't meant to be used as like a model or something like that each indigenous community and tribe and nation is unique and there's no one size fits all approach so that is something that is really important to recognize within this relational aspect is the necessity of having that connection to the history and the community and that ongoing relationship in order to have and to enter into any kind of collaborative approach like this there's a reckoning required. I think that's a good place to end it. And I'm saying that uh, because we're running out of time for this recording. But thank you from all of us here at Unlivable Cultures. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you didn't, eh, who cares? Anyway, <laughs> you just wasted quite a bit of time. So sorry about that. Not our problem. I'm quoting the museums here. Not our problem. Peace. <laughs>